This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by The Wisdom of Hobbits, by me, Matthew J. DiStefano. In this hopeful yet at times poignant homage, I focus on everyone's favorite halfling friend, the Hobbit. A charming people, this Shire-based race has captivated, enthralled, and enchanted the hearts and minds of millions. And though they're not a religious society, I argue that spiritual truths, love, kindness, generosity, hope, and even compassion can be found within their familiar yet still relevant and didactic tales. So come and enter a world of adventure and intrigue. Whether it's your first foray into Middle-earth or the Shire is your second home, allow me to inspire you toward discovering your own inner hobbit. Available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your fine, fine books from Choir Publishing. Hey, this is Shane Claiborne, and I don't always have a second cup of coffee. In fact, I'm trying to switch over to tea. It's not always that easy. But anyway, if you're having a second cup of anything, have it with Keith. Second cup every day. It's good to the last drop. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles. And in this episode, I want to talk about... Jesus as the Prince of Peace, or I guess since we're coming into the Christmas uh, season here, maybe we should call this something about peace on earth. So there's so much surrounding this topic um, that we could talk about. Peace itself, what is peace? What do we mean when we talk about peace? Um, This whole idea of peace on earth that was proclaimed uh, at the birth of Jesus, what is that all about? Whether or not Jesus was a nonviolent Messiah? Did he teach and preach no violence and those kinds of things? So hopefully we'll get to a little bit of all of those things, if not uh, the entire topic. If you're fascinated by this topic and you want to hear more about it, I'm just going to tell you um, the final book in my Jesus, my seven part Jesus on series is called Jesus Unarmed. And uh, it's all about this topic. So, you know, we go way, way in depth, of course, in the book, we go many different directions. And um, so I recommend that if you haven't checked that out yet. But for for this episode of the podcast, um, I guess let's start off by talking about what we mean when we talk about peace. Um, there's several times, you know, in our, I, you know, I talk a lot about English translations of the Bible and how either corrupted or inadequate they often are. Um when you start looking behind the English translation, you go and go to the Hebrew or you go to the Greek in the New Testament. Um, quite often, you find that the actual the actual texts um, that we have say take it way farther or in a different direction, or there's something that's left out or added in sometimes uh, to our English translations of the scripture. So it makes the talking about this topic or really any topic related to the Bible, sometimes really, really challenging. Um, And this is one of them, uh, one of the issues, because in our English translations, quite often, whether Old or New Testament, uh, whenever you read the word peace, um, you have a preconceived idea about what that's saying, right? Um, And for most American Christians who are reading an English translation of either the Old or the New Testament, whenever you read the word peace, you probably have one or two basic ideas in mind, depending on the context, right? So if if you read a verse that talks about peace, um, like when Jesus says, I've come to give you uh, 
peace, right, or whatever, um, or a peace that passes understanding, or you know, something like that. When you read those kinds of texts, you typically will read it, I'm making a huge assumption here, but if I'm wrong, you let me know. But I, again, I, I always read it this way. I guess it's safe to say this is how I always read it. This is the way I always heard it framed from the pulpit or from Bible teachers. I'm assuming you probably are the same. Uh, and so the, the typically the way I heard with my ears and and understood with my mind versus where peace is used like that, like Jesus saying, I come to give you peace, whatever, um, or peace that passes understanding and things like that. I typically had a a mental image or or, a, or received some sort of the concept that what's being talked about is a very is sort of a personal peace, right? It's, it's talking about the kind of peace that I feel in my heart. I don't have anxiety. I don't have uh, confusion. I'm not um, upset or worried about something. I've got this peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. I've got peace that comes from Jesus. And what that peace is primarily about and what Jesus is referring to in those types of passages are that it's referring to my personal feeling of inner peace, right? And then in other contexts, again, depending on the context that it's used, whenever you read about peace, um, like maybe in the Old Testament, if it's talking, you know, if someone's praying and asking God um, to bring to restore peace to the nation or peace to the to the land or the people, again, we typically will read those kinds of verses. And, and when we read the word peace, we assume that it's primarily talking about the absence of conflict, the absence of war, right? Hey, there's this conflict going on. There's war going on. Jesus, come and please stop the war, stop the conflict, um, and, and bring about some sort of, uh, you know, sort of shared feeling and experience of non, <laughs> non-warfare, right? Now, I guess I should start off by saying those aren't wrong, necessarily. I mean, usually, yeah, um, if those, especially if those are the kinds of contexts in which those verses are used, yeah, it probably does imply that, at least that basic level of either a feeling of inner peace uh, and contentment and rest and those kinds of things, um, or a sort of a general social, sociological sense of the absence of war um, and the cessation of war and, and conflict. So, so it's not wrong. You're not, you're not incorrect, let's put it that way. If you read those verses and that's the way you apply the word peace or, or think about the word peace in those contexts, right? But what, what is missing? So this is what I want to get to. What is missing is the fact that um, in both cases, in whether it's Old or New Testament references, there's a deeper meaning to peace there that is lost in the English translation. And what I'm talking about is the, the concept of shalom. So in the Jewish context, in Hebrew especially, right, for Jewish people, whether they were uh, just Israelites in the Old Testament or Jewish Christians in the New Testament, when they write, when they talk about peace, I would say in either or any context, they have in mind a the full meaning, a deeper, richer meaning that is found in the understanding of shalom, 
Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And in and the, the Hebrew word for peace, that word shalom, does it mean uh, a feeling of inner contentment and you know lack of anxiety and fear? Yes, it does mean that. Does it mean the cessation of conflict and war in, in the you know in the national context? Yes, it does mean that. But it also means many other things that we don't get, that we don't pick up on, because the word shalom isn't used. And we don't have a concept of shalom, even if it did say shalom. Like if someone went in and said, oh, we'll fix the problem. We'll just replace the word peace in your English translation with the word shalom, problem solved. No, it's not solved because we still don't understand what is meant by shalom. So can I, I'm going to give you an example of shalom. And by the way, I'm going to give a shout out to my friend, um, Professor Thomas Crisp uh, at Biola University. Uh, he's a philosophy professor there. He's a good friend of mine. And um, my understanding of Shalom came out of some really long, in-depth conversations that he and I had together in my living room, in my den, um, several years ago, because he had really thought a lot about this. He'd written, um, I don't know if he's written a book, but he's certainly written several, um, published several papers on the topic because he was fascinated about this concept as well. And so thank you, Thomas Crisp. Everything I'm going to share with you right now, uh, I owe to my friend Thomas Crisp. So what Thomas pointed out to me was this idea that um, to understand Shalom, this is the example he used. There's a there's a example, there's a passage in the Old Testament off the top of my head. I can't remember what it is, but um, there's a uh, there's a passage where um, a stranger comes into a Jewish village, and it's after sunset, right? So everybody's asleep. Everybody's you know, in their own home separately with their family, eating a meal or maybe getting ready for bed or whatever. And the stranger comes and he is sort of like sitting at the fountain in the center of the city, of the town. Sorry, it's a town, like a village. And um, again, uh, a prophet from that village uh, encounters the stranger. He sees the stranger uh, sitting there at the fountain. And he apologizes and he says, Oh, I'm so sorry, you know, this is so shameful that no one in our village has extended shalom to you. And so he he brings the man in, he welcomes him into his house, uh, he sits him down at his table, he prepares a meal for him, he shares his food with him, he gives the stranger a place to sleep for the evening, and in the morning he gives him bread and, you know, cheese or whatever, and uh, and sends him on his way to the next town. That is an example and a, a full expression of shalom. And a, a better way to sort of define it than that story. Uh, the story gives us an example of sort of shalom in action. But but what it would mean in the Jewish context, again, think of, think of it more in the sense of a small village or a small community uh, or a small, maybe a small town. Because, because shalom is a communal word. It's a communal concept. And the, and the communal concept of shalom in the, in the Jewish, in the Hebrew context, was that until everyone in that community had enough, had a, had a place to sleep, had food to eat, had shelter from the elements, um, you know, had, had food for the journey or whatever it happened to be, until everyone in that community had all of those things, that is shalom. Until everyone has shalom, no one has shalom. 
So going back to that example of the man in the village, um, the reason why that person was so troubled and upset that this stranger was sitting here at the fountain and no one had extended, opened their home to him, no one had extended shalom to this, to this stranger, was, was the understanding, the realization in the mind of that person that, oh my gosh, our village right now doesn't have shalom because this person right here in the middle of our town doesn't have shalom. And I must extend shalom to this stranger, to this person, so that everyone in this village, in this city, in this town, can truly enjoy shalom. So shalom is a shared thing. And it, as long as there's someone in the community who doesn't have food, shelter, clothing, uh, support, um, you know, encouragement, all those things. If anyone lacks any of those things, that person doesn't have shalom and that community also doesn't have shalom. And, and so now you see, can see what I'm saying, where if all you have in your text is the word peace and all you're taking away from it is either the idea of, oh, I have, I feel good myself personally, I feel contentment, um, or, or it's just merely the, the, the absence of violence or the absence of conflict, you're missing a much deeper understanding of what that word intends to communicate to you. And so I personally have found it so powerful to go back and reread uh, the scriptures. And anytime I come across the word peace, I'll stop and replace it with the word shalom and then read it again and think of it in, the, in that context of shared communal shalom. I talk about this, um, I can't remember off the top of my head if I've ever done a, a Second Cup podcast on this or not. There's a good chance I have because I can't remember anything. <laughs> I'm, I'm finding that I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting things more and more often. God, I hope I'm not going to have dementia. Uh, but anyway, so far it's just minor things like, have I talked about this on a podcast? So we're, we're safe, I think, for now. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway... Even if I have talked about it before, I want to talk about it. In this context, it's probably a good idea to, to remind everyone again um, that this is also like a, a one of the reasons, if we don't grasp this concept I'm talking about of Shalom, uh, it's one of the reasons why we will miss what's really going on when Jesus gives us what we now call the Lord's Prayer. And for the longest time, I also missed it. I always read and understood the Lord's prayer that Jesus gives us, like, you know, when they're asked, they ask him, how do I pray? And he gives them this thing. When you pray, you know, pray like, pray like this, um, that Lord's prayer, right? Um, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, forgive us our trespasses, etc. So for the longest time, I would read that and I would, internalize that prayer completely from a selfish, um, you know, kind of an internal way, the same way I would say the word peace in my Bible is about my personal peace. I would read that Lord's prayer as like, well, this is my personal prayer to God, just me and God. And what I missed was the communal aspect of that prayer or the Lord's prayer. And so now I can see which is right on the page in front of me, is that the Lord's Prayer is a communal prayer. It's a prayer of community. It's not, it doesn't say, God, give me my daily bread. No, I'm, Jesus encourages us to pray, you know, God, give 
us our daily bread. Give us, you know, forgive us our trespasses. See, now that's in the shalom context. I'm encouraged, Jesus is encouraging all of us, when we pray, to pray not only for my daily bread, but to, but to say, okay, what about our daily bread? Meaning my community, my city, my village, my town. I'm supposed to pray for everyone to have daily bread. I'm supposed to not just pray for my forgiveness, but to, to pray that everyone would receive and experience this mercy and this forgiveness. Do you see what I'm saying? And that is a radically different way to read and understand the Lord's Prayer. It's What it's saying is you and I are not isolated. We are not separated from one another or from God. That's a radical message that quite often, sadly, is lost to many of us. We don't see it, uh, even though, it's, again, it's right there on the page in front of us. So um, restoring this concept of shalom instead of just merely a sort of a personal peace uh, or the lack of violence or conflict is such an important thing for us to grasp. So when we talk about peace on earth, um, again, it's, it's extending shalom to the entire planet, not just to my family, not just to my neighborhood, not just to my village not just to my city, not just to my nation, but to my planet, to our, it's not my planet, is it? <laughs> it's our planet. And so, again, that's the radical thing that's being proclaimed at the birth of Jesus. Peace, shalom on earth, right? That's good news. Well, imagine, imagine a world where Everyone on the planet had shalom, where everyone on the planet had a place to sleep, had food to eat, had clothing and shelter, had someone to love them and care for them and look after them, right? Who believed in them, who supported them, who affirmed them. Now that's the picture. That's what peace on earth is really proclaiming. But again, we until we see shalom in that, in that smaller context, of, of, a, of a community, of a village, we can't, we can't even imagine extending that outward to everyone everywhere, right? But once you do begin to see it that way, then you can understand why when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's exactly what he's talking about. He's saying to his Jewish brothers and sisters that shalom, you know, who is my neighbor? Well, anybody you see who has need. Shalom is for everybody. Shalom isn't just for Jews, isn't just for Gentiles, it isn't just for Israelites, it's not just for Roman citizens, it's not just for Americans or, or whatever, right? Fill in the blank. Shalom is intended fully, God's full intention is that this beautiful shalom be extended to the whole earth. And that is what's in view when Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. For, for, uh, for that God would forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive others, right? So there's this healing uh, and rest restoration across everyone, you know, no separation, no uh, divisions like that. So that's really important to understand. And so um, when I wrote the book, Jesus Unarmed, primarily what I'm trying to do in that book is um, to kind of, 
understand and respond to some of the uh, pushback that I get from people when I talk about Jesus as a nonviolent Messiah. I've literally had pastors, pastors of churches tell me, I mean, quote, I'm quoting now. Uh, I, had a, I had a pastor once tell me uh, on, on Facebook that he would kick my ass if I tried to teach that Jesus was uh, taught nonviolence or that Jesus was a pacifist. Now, I don't like the word pacifist because pacifism is sort of embedded in that word is the idea um, of, of being passive. In other words, doing nothing. And that is not what we're talking about. I would, I would argue, and I argue strongly in the book, that it's impossible to follow Jesus uh, faithfully and sit back and do nothing. Jesus is not saying, follow me, do nothing. And absolutely not. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you say, all right, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to take the Sermon on the Mount and, and the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus as my personal guide and map and blueprint, I promise you one thing, you will not be doing nothing. In fact, you will be so active in loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, caring for the poor, um, serving those in need, all these kinds of things. Trust me, you will not be doing nothing. So pacifism is the wrong, the wrong word. Um, it is more about being sort of an agent of shalom, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and so, you know, when I say things like, for example, okay, let, let me get this straight. Well, so when I say, Jesus is nonviolent. People say, oh no, Jesus. But what about where Jesus says, go and buy a sword? But what about where Jesus, you know, turned over the tables in the temple and whipped, he took a whip and chased people out of the temple, huh? You know, and, and all that kind of, what about in Revelation where Jesus comes back with a sword out of his mouth and cuts people's heads off and blood flows, you know, like rivers. Um, so let's understand Christians are, <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of American Christians are committed to the idea of a violent Jesus. They want and they need Jesus to be violent. And they'll even say, oh, yes, I get it. Jesus, oh yeah, he came in the beginning like a lamb, but he's coming back like a lion and he's going to watch out, watch your butt. Uh, if you don't, if you're not on his side, he's going to come back and he's going to wipe you out and put, put the hurt on you, right? As if Jesus uh, is suddenly going to turn into everything he tells you not to be, right? Jesus tells you, love your enemies. But when Jesus comes back, oh, he's going to, he's going to whoop them. Uh, is that consistent? Does that really make sense? Well, I argue, no, it, it doesn't make sense. And I'll try to take some time in this podcast to deal with some of those main objections I just gave you. Again, the book, Jesus Unarmed, goes through these examples and many, many others uh, that are usually used to justify that Christians should own guns or weapons or, or respond uh, with violence. It's, it's really embedded in this idea of, of the goodness, the, this, this sanctification, the holiness of uh, retributive violence. So again, it's a deep subject. It goes deeper even into like uh, our view of the atonement, of, of penal substitutionary atonement theory, right? Because if you accept penal substitutionary atonement theory, then that means you accept the idea that God has to respond to sin with violence. Someone must suffer violence and suffer pain. Someone must bleed. God is like Molech or the volcano god who cannot love you and forgive you unless he first gets a innocent virgin child sacrifice. And um, personally, I don't believe that. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that is the wrong, that is a backwards primitive way of thinking about who God is. And I think Jesus actually comes and subverts that and actually shows us and demonstrates to us that 
if that's who you thought God was, that is, you're wrong. That is not who God is, and Jesus goes out of his way. I think a, a huge part of the ministry and life of Jesus um, is demonstrating the opposite, and demonstrating, no, God is not a God of wrath. God is not a God of anger. That is God's primary response to our sin is not retribution. It's not wrath. It's not punishment in the sense of just making you feel pain. But if you haven't deconstructed that and you still hang on to that idea, well, then naturally then you're going to you're going to still believe that well then god is violent and jesus does use violence and will use violence uh in the future to um you know punish because punishment is what it's all about uh and god's god's primary response to those things is punishment so punishment will involve some measure of violence right so <clears throat> it's so inconsistent though and and it's and by the way it's probably one of the more difficult things to unravel, especially for American Christians. I think this is one of the hardest things for us to unravel. We are so caught up in our Second Amendment rights. I have the right, according to the Constitution, to own a gun and own a weapon and to use it in self-defense. If someone you know breaks into my house, I have the right to blow their brains out. And you know, and so yes, you you're right. You do. Uh, if your primary um, you know, code, if your primary um, text for living your life is the Constitution, you are dead right. That's absolutely right. But is the Constitution what you live by? Shouldn't it be the words of Jesus if you're a Christian? Now, if you're not a Christian, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. But if you are listening to this podcast and you are a Christian, then think about it. What To what do you pledge allegiance? I would say to Christ, right? To the Lamb of God not to the Constitution. Uh, this is why I wrote Jesus Untangled, um, you know, and, and, this, and the subtitle is um, uh, Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb, because, again, this is who I was for the longest time. I, I was raised in a Republican, conservative Christian home in, in Texas. Um, I was a member of the NRA. I listened to Rush Limbaugh. I owned a bunch of guns. I mean, I, I, I my Christianity was so entangled with my politics, I couldn't tell where one ended and the other began. I was more American than Christian. And many Christians, that's where they are today. And this is why Christian nationalism is on the rise. When I wrote Jesus Untangled, the idea of Christian nationalism was a warning and a danger and something to avoid. And and um, and that's why I wrote the book to warn people about it. And fast forward to today, like five, six years later, um, Christian nationalism is like out in the open. And people are, are like saying, hell yeah, I'm a Christian nationalist and that you should be too. So it wasn't, you know, it's it's gone from something sort of like, like a blind spot, an, an unconscious thing that Christians were doing and they didn't know they were doing it, which is where I was at until I, you know, the, the veil lifted and I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Right. I, uh, I have pledged allegiance to a, to a nation and, um, rather than to, to the Lamb of God. Anyway, um. But now fast forward to today and it's like, oh no, there's no difference. Yes, being a, being a good American is, being a nationalist is being a good Christian. And man, there's so many dangerous things about that. So um, yeah, so there's a whole lot of deconstructing we have to do away from nationalism, away from um, sort of the politis, politicization uh, of our faith, the entanglement of our faith with our politics. And so um, if you haven't done that, then this topic is really difficult to hear. 
if you're listening to this right now and you're feeling uncomfortable, it, it's probably because of that, because you are still concerned about, well, no, Keith, I've got this right. And many Christians would just respond, Keith, you're being ridiculous. Why can't I have both? Why can't I be an American? Why can't I pledge allegiance to the, the flag and the Constitution in the United States of America and be a follower of Jesus? And I would say, well, you can as long as they're both going in the same direction, right? If two people are walking in the same direction, of course, I can follow both of them. But I don't know. I get the feeling that as I read the Gospels, Jesus is pretty clear that he's going north and everybody else, the whole world is going the other way. That's his whole idea of metanoia, repent, turn around and, and follow me because I'm not going the way you're going naturally, the way you would go even if I, if I never showed up, right? And so again, this is the difference. Following Jesus is to stop and reconsider and rethink everything and you have internalized about what is true and, and the way the world should work and the way you should live your life and to reframe it based only on Jesus, not Jesus and the Constitution or Jesus and your political party or whatever. And so anyway, I get so much pushback when I talk about uh, this idea of Jesus being serious when he says, love your enemies. He means that. He's not kidding. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, um, and not to return violence for violence or evil for evil. He's serious about that. When Jesus says overcome evil with good, right? He's serious about that. And he's, it's not a metaphor. He's dead serious. And, um, but again, like I said, Christians have come up with all these different things, you know, and I, I'm sorry, by the way, I just want to be really transparent here. You know, every time I talk about this and I, and a Christian will respond to me, Usually it's, it's sort of a, they'll, they'll create a scenario, right? They'll say, okay, Keith, I hear what you're saying. Oh yeah, but, but now what if in the middle of the night, someone breaks into your house and you go into the living room and there's, there's a guy there with a gun and he's got a gun or a knife to your wife's head or your, or your, 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 your kid, your child, your daughter, your son, and they're going to kill them. Now, what do you do now? Right. Do now are you nonviolent? Now would you not use violence to save your wife or your child? And I got to say, those scenarios, when, I, when somebody gives me a scenario like that, a couple of thoughts come into my head. But the first one is this. It sounds to me, when a Christian responds to that, to what I'm saying, when I point out these scriptures, when I, point, when I say that Jesus said these things and meant these things, and then they give me a scenario like that, I can't help it. What I hear them saying is, yeah, 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 I hear what you're saying. So Jesus tells me not to respond with violence. Jesus tells me to love my enemy. Jesus tells me to turn the other cheek. But what if, you know, is there a scenario that we can come up with where I don't have to follow Jesus? Like, that's what it sounds like to me. As an analogy, it would be like if I said, you know, the scriptures say not to commit adultery. And, you, and your response to that was, okay, yeah, but what if my wife's in a coma and she's, and she's been in a coma for like five years and it looks like she's not coming out of it. And I haven't had sex in five years and her hospice nurse is smoking hot and she's single and she really has a thing for me. Now can I have, now can I commit adultery? I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. When you give me these, when you create imaginary scenarios that are purposely designed as imaginary scenarios in which you don't have to obey Jesus. Or any, you know what I mean? You could come with, you could come up with lots of other examples like this, right? If Jesus says, you know, you shouldn't steal. Okay, okay, I see, I understand that. Jesus tells me not to steal. But what if, right? And then you create some scenario where where stealing would be 
acceptable. Uh, and it just seems like an odd response for somebody who is telling, who is, who is saying to me and to the world, I follow Jesus. And then I say, well, Jesus says and did these things. And your response as a Jesus follower is, what are the examples that I don't have to follow him? And instead of like, to me, if you're really a follower of Jesus, then when, when somebody says, Jesus says this, your question, your scenario should be, how can I follow him better? What are the scenarios or what are the things that I can do to more uh, faithfully put the words of Jesus into practice? What are the things, how can I align my life in such a way that everything I do um, is in agreement with what Jesus said and did? That's what a Jesus follower would do. I'm sorry, that, that is what you would do. So for me, you know, the, the, the things I have done in advance on purpose, intentionally, to make sure that I can follow Jesus and love my enemy and not kill them and not do violence to them is I don't own a gun. So if someone broke into my house and had a gun or a knife to a loved one's, you know, neck or head, the thing I won't do is shoot them. Why? Because I don't have a gun. Because I've already ahead of time decided that that won't be an option for me as a follower of Jesus. So what will I do? Well, I don't know, but it won't be that, right? And the other problem with that scenario, too, is that you're assuming that this is going to be, this is going to be hard to say, or maybe hard to hear. It's not hard for me to say it, but it's, it may be hard for you to hear it. That kind of a scenario, uh, let's just reduce it down, okay? In that scenario, um, I am faced with a conundrum, right? I, I have a, I have a problem. I have a challenge. And the challenge is there's someone I love, my child, my wife, my spouse, whatever. And, 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 and I also have sort of the bad guy, the evil person, the stranger, right? And so in that scenario, the way it's set up, the only way out of it is to do violence to the stranger, the bad guy in order to protect the one I love. And that scenario, and, and any other scenarios like that, any scenario by which you as a follower of Jesus use violence against the other person in order to save the one you love, can I just, can I just point something out to you? That's what Jesus calls loving those who love you in return. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, right in the same section where he's telling you to, to turn the other cheek and bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. He, he frames it like this. He says, if you only love people who love you in return, what credit is that to you? Unbelievers do that. So what? So what if you only love people that love you in return? There's nothing special about that. There's nothing remarkable about that. So what? No, Jesus says, I'm calling you to a higher level of response, a higher level of love. I'm asking you to love not just those who love you in return, your children, your spouse, whoever is the victim in that scenario. I'm challenging you to not just love those who love you back. I'm challenging you, challenging you to find a way to love even those who do violence to you, even those who don't love you. That's what Jesus is calling us to. 
And I know this gets, you know, this gets very dicey and all that stuff, but I'm just saying, if you believe that Jesus is telling you it's okay for you to use a weapon or violence against another person to protect your loved ones, you are only doing the thing Jesus tells you is unremarkable. You are only loving those who love you in return. You are failing to love those who don't love you in return. And that's our challenge as followers of Jesus. What can I do? How can I be creative? Be Use imagination. By the way, my book, Jesus Unarmed, it was so much fun going through real-life examples of, of uh, times when people responded to violence, to people with a weapon who were threatening them, with love, with extraordinary, creative um, compassion, and to see just how it would break down their defenses. It would literally disarm them. When someone didn't respond with violence, didn't respond to the threat of violence with more violence, but instead responded to that threat of violence with compassion, with love, with a, with a creative sense of shalom uh, to allow the kingdom to break in. I'm telling you, it's powerful. But I also talk about in the book how, you know, those are great examples. And I, and I love looking at all those many different examples of real life situations where someone did something really unexpected and disarmed that person and it had a beautiful outcome. Uh, and everybody went away hugging each other, crying, blessed, you know, and everything was wonderful. But, you know, there's just many other examples of when people do exactly that and they get killed. Yes, they do. That's right. And you're the best example of somebody who um, responded to people who were threatening them with love and, and it failed and, and, they, and they died. Jesus. <laughs> the one we're following. So, uh, yes, yeah, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but that's what it means to follow Jesus. And, and if you try it and it fails and you die, you are following in the path and the example of Jesus. You're doing exactly what Jesus did. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But we've lost that. We, we always look for scenarios where we come out ahead, where somehow uh, God jumps in and, and, and uh, we win and they lose. But that's not really the way Jesus frames things. Um, I wanted to also um, just say how inconsistent it is to think about Jesus as a violent person. It just makes no sense, right? So I, I have this thing where I, just in my frustration over all, the, I've, been, I've been debating Christians about this for so long. And I just remember one, one time I finally was just like, okay. All right, let me get this straight. Let me, so let me, again, I'm talking to Christians here because Christians, by the way, are the only people on the planet who, who deny that Jesus was nonviolent. Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, they all say, yeah, Jesus was that nonviolent, turn the other cheek, love your enemy guy, right? Yes, he was. Christians, by the way, don't agree with that. Christians want to push back and say, well, no, yeah, 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 but, 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 but what about, what about? So anyway, I was, I was having a debate with somebody um, on this topic, a Christian on this topic, and I just said, all right, man, let me get this straight. So the Messiah, who was meant to bring peace, right, who was called the Prince of Peace, um, who's, who had said his kingdom would lead us to beat our swords into plowshares and study war no more, whose birth was announced by a legion of angels who were proclaiming peace on earth, goodwill towards men, who came as a baby, who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, who wept over the city. Remember that whole, you know, Palm Sunday thing? 
who wept over the city, saying, quote, They did not know the things that make for peace. Who taught us to love our enemies, turn the other cheek, bless those who curse us, rebuked his own disciples when they wanted to call down fire from heaven, saying, You don't know what spirit you are of. Who disarmed Peter, who told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would fight. Yes, he did. Look it up in the Gospel of John. And he said, Father, forgive them even as he was being nailed to a cross. And he rose from the dead. And when he appeared to his disciples, it says he breathed upon them peace. Yeah. So you want me to think and believe that that guy, Jesus, that, that Messiah, he's totally pro-violence. Well, I'm sorry. That is so inconsistent with who Jesus is. And in the time I have left, um, I'm going to try to quickly cover some of the main objections. So again, usually uh, the objection that I get is this idea, but what about when Jesus turned over the tables in the temple? This is, I hear this all the time. Jesus it says in the Bible, Jesus made a whip. Does it? Because again, most of the time they're not actually reading the text. And I again, always encourage you to go back over the, go back over there, read what it actually, actually says. So this is John chapter 2. Verses 14 through 16. And I'm going to read it to you. Pay close attention and see if you notice. Uh, uh, let's put it this way. Listen for the part of the story where it says Jesus fashioned a whip and used the whip against people. Okay, here it is. John chapter 2, starting in verse 14. In the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So, he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple, both sheep and cattle. Wait a minute. Jesus made a whip and he drove all of them from the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. Huh. So it seems like it's going out of its way to, to express to us the idea that when Jesus made the whip, and he used the whip to chase all of them from the temple, who are all of them? Comma, both the sheep and the cattle. So, uh, and by the way, too, when you use a whip, here's the, here's the thing about a whip. When you're using a whip to drive sheep or cattle, which, by the way, is a weird way to do that, but anyway, if you were going to use a whip to drive the sheep or the cattle, you just crack the whip over their heads to make that sound. Waka, right? Waka. The sound of the whip scares them and they run away from it. That's what you do with the whip. If you are using a whip to drive sheep and cattle by actually physically whipping like the body of the cow or the sheep, you are doing it wrong. Nobody actually whips the back of a sheep or a cow, especially that they're intending to, you know, sell or, or, or slaughter later. Um, you don't want to you don't want to mark the animal. You don't want to create a wound on the animal that you're going to have to heal and stitch up and all that other stuff. Like, no, that, that would be wrong. So even if he's using the whip to chase anybody out of anywhere, all he's doing is cracking it in the air to make the loud sound, which scares the sheep and the cattle. It doesn't do any violence to anybody. Did he flip over some tables? Is that violent? Well, if you're a table, yeah but he doesn't physically do violence to anybody. And I just want to say this, this is like so important. Um, if you are insistent 
that no, 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 that is an example of Jesus being violent. I want you to understand something. If you believe that Jesus did violence like that in that example, if you say that right there, Keith, that's an example. When Jesus cleanses the temple, that is a violent act. Then I want you to understand what you're also affirming is that Jesus was not the Messiah prophesied in Isaiah 53. Because if you turn to Isaiah 53, you will read, among other things, about the prophecy about the Messiah who would come. It says this. He, that's the Messiah, was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53, 9. Go look it up. Jesus, if he was the Messiah and he did violence, disqualified himself. He's not the Messiah. We've got to look somewhere else. But that's how you know Jesus didn't do violence to anybody. Even to the cows and the sheep. Because again, you don't use a whip on the physical body of the animal. You'll just crack it in the air over their heads to create a big, loud, scary sound to make them run away. That's the, how you use a whip to drive sheep and cattle. Of course, the other uh, one is always um, about, you know, where he says supposedly, uh, go and buy two swords, right? Well, um, that one is pretty easily debunked as well, because if you read that whole passage, the whole context of the conversation, um, Jesus is talking about the scriptures about him that must be fulfilled. And what scripture is that? It's the scripture that says he was um, numbered among the transgressors or the lawbreakers. And so he's literally saying to his disciples, Does, do, you, do any of you have a sword? They say there's two. And by the way, by the way, <laughs> again, go into the Greek and the word therefore sword is actually just a word for a common, like a knife. Uh, ironically, the kind of a knife you would use if you were a fisherman and you had a knife that we would use to cut the nets that were tangled. Were any of them fishermen? Yes. So they probably did have a sort of a fisherman's knife on them, not a sword. They didn't walk around with swords, but they probably had a knife on them because they were fishermen. So anyway, two knives, swords, whatever, but probably most likely knives, common knives that fishermen used. And Jesus says that's enough. Why? What does he mean by that? It's enough what? To, to resist Roman a uh, legion of Roman soldiers? Of course not. Twelve guys with two knives are not going to do anything except fulfill the prophecy. That's what Jesus is talking about in context. So that the prophecy about me must be fulfilled. And in fact, that's exactly what he says right after uh, Peter cuts off the ear of the soldier or the servant. Jesus rebukes him and says, put away your sword, put away your knife. Uh, those that live by the sword will die by the sword. And then he heals the man's ear. And then he says, keep reading, because then he says, but how else would must the scriptures be fulfilled? What scriptures? Again, the one about Jesus being numbered among the lawbreakers, the transgressors. So that whole thing about going by a sword is specifically and only in the context of the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah that he would be numbered among the lawbreakers or the transgressors. That's it. And you know that Jesus doesn't give that command as a, as a blanket statement that all Christians everywhere should now suddenly start carrying weapons to defend themselves because in, in the text, as soon as someone uses a weapon to defend themselves or their loved one, those who love them in return, 
um, Jesus immediately rebukes that disciple and tells them to put it away. And one of the early church fathers, I think it was Tertullian, said, when, when Christ disarmed Peter, he disarmed every Christian. There's many other examples. I, in, the, in the context of this podcast, I probably won't keep going. But again, if you're like I said, if you're curious about this topic and you're like, well, but what about this verse? And what about that verse? It's all in the book, Jesus Unarmed. Go check it out. Um, uh, it's called How the Prince of Peace Disarms Our Violence is the subtitle. And um, anyway, so it's an important it's an important thing. And, and I understand that as I'm talking about this, as I'm, as I'm saying, no, Jesus seriously intends that you and I love our enemies, that we refrain from violence, and that we become committed to looking for loving, creative, nonviolent ways of responding to people who approach us or oppose us with hatred or violence. And I understand that that creates all sorts of challenges for us, all sorts of questions for us. But what about, but what about, and I understand that. And I think that's exactly what Jesus intends because it puts us back into a constant place, a constant um, status of, of living every day in this tension of, okay, Jesus, how do I follow you today? Where are we going today? Who am I supposed to love today? How am I supposed to respond today to people around me? So, and and so, because there's, so there's no cookie cutter answer, right? There's no formula. It's in the moment, as it happens, suddenly now you and I are, are in constantly placed in situations and scenarios where we're in that moment we have to say, okay, God, help me. Spirit of God, show me. What's the, what is the right way to respond um, in this situation in a way that honors Jesus, that obeys that command to love our enemy, to, to love our neighbor as ourself and those kinds of things. So yeah, it's not easy. I, I totally understand that. And I, like I said, I think sometimes we can, we'll follow that and, and we'll follow it until it'll work until it doesn't. And maybe that's the way we die, but I don't know about you. I would love for my life story to be that I died loving or at least attempting to respond in love to somebody who was trying to do me harm. And that would be the, a beautiful testimony. And I think it would be a powerful testimony to that person. You know, I might die, but that person still has to keep going living. And we'll have years and years, probably behind bars, uh, if they're arrested for my murder, um, to wonder, why did this person respond with love? Why did this person do something so out of the ordinary, right? that they didn't respond with violence. They didn't respond the way I expected. They did something very unexpected and they responded with compassion and love towards me. Why would they do that, right? So I think it could have it create ripples beyond uh, our own life if it leads to that. You know, hopefully it doesn't. It doesn't have to. Um, again, there's many examples in the book about uh, times where people responded in these creative ways and it was, man, amazing stuff happened. Beautiful things happened. It's just, it was just really a wonderful thing. And that's the point I think is that I think what Jesus wants us to understand is that we need to reframe the way we think about those kinds of situations, that they are actually opportunities for the kingdom of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God to break in through us in the ways that we respond to people who very clearly do not see the kingdom, who very clearly do not understand 
the things that we do, who have clearly not been transformed or are not undergoing the transformation process uh, as we are. And we get to, uh, if, we, if we see it, if we understand those as opportunities to allow the grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the kingdom of God to break in, that's what that is. I think that's exactly what I think Jesus is saying. He wants us to say those opportunity, those, those, those moments of conflict are opportunities for the shalom of God to break in. And if you will take that opportunity, if you'll see the opportunity and take the opportunity, there is at least a chance that something phenomenal and spectacular is about to happen because you see it and you suddenly are uh, allowing the other person the opportunity to see it and experience it the same way you do. I just think that's beautiful. So anyway, thank you so much for uh, listening to another episode of Second Cup with Keith. I really appreciate it. Um, if you don't already, you uh, you can support me on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Keith Giles. Um, lots of amazing extra bonus content available for you there. Um, my latest book, Solar Mysterium, is available on Amazon, on Kindle, and very soon on Audible. So be looking for that. Excited about that. And um, we're approaching the end of the year. So I just want to say to everybody who's been listening this past year, thank you so much for listening to Second Cup with Keith. Thank you so much for those of you who have supported me on Patreon. Thank you very much. Those of you who read my blog, keithchiles.com, I really appreciate you. Those of you who read my books and have, have taken time to send me a note or a message to let me know how much the book has meant to you, thank you very much. I'm very grateful for all of you, for all of your support and all of your wonderful comments. Uh, please take time if you have a chance to rate and review this podcast on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It goes a long way to helping other people discover this podcast. Um, oh, real quick, I'll also say I'm, I've just opened a TikTok account. You can follow me on TikTok. It's The Real Keith Giles. And um, you'll see me over there having a little fun over there. So, um, yeah, let's, let's, let's expand. Let's take this thing, uh, take it out of the podcast world and uh, expand Second Cup to uh, many, many other people and places. And I guess I'll leave you there. Thank you so much. God bless. And um, I guess we'll see you in the new year. Take care.